This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. It's your club, and this is your show. Well, if you'd asked me on Saturday night if I was happy with a point at Ellen Road, then the answer would have been a definite no. But funnily enough, 24 hours later, I was feeling a whole lot better about the situation. Maybe, just maybe, this season is going to be a bit bonkers, and maybe that disappointment was a bit of an overreaction. There are mitigating factors too. City's squad is ravaged by injuries, and there are players isolating, while games are coming thick and fast off the back of no pre-season. So we'll have some measured reaction to that stalemate at Leeds on today's show. Also coming up on this week's Blue Moon podcast, we'll speak to Mike Riggs, who was technical director at City and in charge of player acquisitions under both Mark Hughes and Roberto Mancini. And Howard Hawking is back on the show as well. I'm David Mooney and this week I'm joined by football writer for Stats Perform, Dom Farrell. Hello. And football writer and broadcaster, Daniel Storey. Hi, David. So, uh, let's start with uh, with that uh, that game at Leeds. As, uh, as has happened so many times recently, City started off brightly, got themselves an early lead and then didn't build on it, Dom. It's, it's the story of the last 18 months, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's kind of a weird combination of issues that have come up repeatedly for City, namely, as you say, not making a spell of dominance count, missed chances, looking flimsy at the back. But at the same time, it's probably fair to say City won't have any more games at all. Like that. Well, they might have one more game like that this year when Leeds come to the Etihad Stadium because, you know, Bielsa throws a, a particular brand of football. And it was, I mean, it was just... Very good fun, wasn't it, really? I mean, I, I imagine that the will City fans will be tearing their hair out about elements of the performance. But, you know, it, it was kind of like the Premier League's tribute to the ongoing NBA final series, really. <laughs> if you have a shot, we have a shot. It was chaotic and brilliant. Daniel, as a, as a neutral in in all of this, uh, I, I kept hearing uh, the commentary team on the on, on the game saying, as a, you know, that this this is a great advert for the Premier League, and it's it's one of the most entertaining games we've seen in. But because I was biting my nails so much about everything that was going on, I'm not really sure I saw it. Was it that entertaining? Yeah, it was actually. Not least because I think there is a tendency, and it, it's an unfair tendency now that to use the word tactical as as a euphemism for stalemate and for kind of teams cancelling each other out and therefore it being quite boring. And and the whole match was understandably framed around Bielsa and Guardiola as these two kind of tactical behemoths or tactical pillars of the modern game. And yet it ended in what ostensibly looked for the last half an hour like absolute chaos, which was, was a huge amount of fun. Um, I mean, I'm sure Bielsa would have been happier than Guardiola in that Guardiola seems to obsess about the the importance of control and it didn't really look like he had any, you know, he brought on Fernandinho, but that felt like, you know, felt like putting an umbrella up in a a thunderstorm, to be honest, because it was just all moving parts around him. Uh, So, yes, it was great fun. He was very much a man who, uh, with a small bucket of water, discharged to a house fire, <laughs> wasn't he? That was that, that was how it was. Um, Dom Daniel mentioned it there: losing control of games. Uh, this is a this is a running theme for City now. Um, why can they start so dominantly, but by the hour have absolutely no control of a game? I think. I mean, we touched upon Fernandinho coming on, um, and that did coincide with City actually finishing the game relatively strongly, which is is something they haven't done over the last 18 months of once kind of once momentum goes against this team they struggle to turn things back so i mean if you were if guardiola was to scramble around for some positives from the second half as a whole i think that would be one um i think it's beyond reasonable doubt now that rodri needs help in there whether that's fernandinho whether it's the 
much discussed and debated partnership of him and Gundogan. I mean, obviously, I think there's a, a rump of the City fan base who w- want to understandably always want to see the 4-3-3 from the 100-point season, but that's gone now for various reasons. Leroy Sane's gone, David Silva's gone, so that, that left side of the attack isn't there anymore. Teams play through City's press, which City have had problems with better than they used to. So I think you look at last season and also the Wolves game at the start of this season, You know, and the last season examples will be things like both legs against Real Madrid, Liverpool at home, uh, United in the League Cup semi-final at Old Trafford. And it was with that with that double pivot in front of the back four. I think certainly when you look across this start of the season, certainly the games on Sunday, there's a lot of chaos going on in this season because of the nature of it. And that might settle down. But I think I think Guardiola's best chance now is to accept that it has to be Rodri and another and get that control back of games because without it, they're it's just far I, I think it feeds into the problems in the attack as well that the, I think the attackers look like they play with a bit of anxiety of rather than a goal settling them down they're sort of thinking we need to get two or three here because we'll be letting goals in so yeah I, I think it's the four three three period and the your know, your know, handbrake off football with this group of players Guardiola has at the moment I think that's probably a thing of the past for most games against quality sides now yeah, does, I mean, Daniel, does it all come down to, you know, City just need to score more chances in that first 25 minutes? Because Leeds were on the ropes for that 25 minutes and then, you know, suddenly City had lost control of it. Yeah, I mean, yes, that is true. Uh, if they if they were, were, you know, if they were more prolific in front of goal, that would clearly offset some of those issues, but it wouldn't eliminate them. It would merely mask them. And I think Guardiola would, while he, he would like the side to take more of their chances and they should do, he will be keen to finally eliminate the problems rather than merely sort of place a, a veil over them. Um, and and yeah, the reality is is that you know last season it felt like when Manchester City conceded, everything seemed to sort of fall around them. So far this season, it feels like it it only takes a side to counter at them once, not even score, just counter at the once and make them feel a little bit nervous. And now even that's enough to kind of dismantle the game plan. It, it, it feels like a new problem for City because they, they've already dropped five points this season in games they've scored first in. They've never met, they've never had conceded more, or sorry, never dropped more than nine points in a season in, in the Guardiola's time at the club, having scored first. It used to be that when City scored first, they won. Now it feels this, there's, there's this new problem. It's not just that City kind of collapse when they concede a goal first, but they, they're collapsing when they're scoring first. And that has to worry him. It really does. Yeah, Don mentioned the uh, the double pivot. So let's let's touch on that now because last season, uh, you know, the, the defensive issues were, were were clear. You know, they lost Laporte early on in the in the campaign. Vincent Company had left and not been replaced. Fernandinho was was dropped deeper to be the uh, the, the, the kind of the newest of the uh, of the back four, uh, and that left a big Fernandinho shaped hole in the in the centre of the pitch. And the, the the solution to that was Rodri and another one in that that double pivot role. Um, now that Fernandinho is available as a, as a midfielder again, surely that that's that those two seem the best option, Daniel. Yeah, I think I think they do. I really do. Uh, and that is an admission from from Guardiola um, that he got it wrong, either because. He, you know, he he felt he had to move Fernandinho back into defence, and yet it didn't really make City any better. It just changed their point of weakness from centre half to centre midfield, I think. Um, and also that that maybe that Rodri isn't quite the player that they wanted him to be. You know, he isn't 
he's he's an excellent passer of the ball, but I think City probably thought they were getting someone slightly more multifunctional. Now that might happen, you know, he's only had a year and, and players can quickly improve. But um, there were times last season when it looked like he was really struggling. Um, and that will slightly concern Guardiola, I think, because he was his pick for that role. You know, it was he wasn't one of those that they missed out on four or five options or two or three better options and, and ended up with Rodri. He was the man he wanted and he got it. Um, but I still think there's a, a, a bigger issue, which is concentration. I think there are tactical weaknesses at City that teams look to exploit, but some of the concentration issues are unacceptable from, from senior players. I'm thinking Carl Walker against Leicester. Just that, that you know that Jamie Vardy is going to run in behind you. So you have to be aware of that. And Guardiola must have told him to be aware of that because everyone, even supporters knew, and Guardiola does a lot more opposition analysis than we do. So that concentration must drive Guardiola mad because these are better players than that. Yeah. Um, just looking at, at Rodri, Dom, there was a moment in that Leeds game that, that actually really concerned me because uh, he was he was the holding midfielder on his own and uh, Leeds ended up with a break. It was, it, it was after they'd scored. Um, so the, the game was at 1-1 and it was a, a very similar situation to the one in which you know, they won the corner that they scored from. They ended up with a four-on-four at the uh, running at, at City's defence and Rodri was bypassed in the middle and three times he tried to, to, to bring the man down and, and kind of give away the tactical foul and three times he missed and it ended up with a, a shot from the left-hand side going over the bar and it was lucky escape. But I, I just got me thinking that when Fernandinho was in that role on his own, the, the, there was only two outcomes there. Either Leeds had a free kick on the halfway line or City had the ball back. That was it. Yeah, for a guy who um, played under, under Diego Simeone, he seems incredibly nice and incredibly sort of unfamiliar with the dark arts, Rodri, I think, um, which he could... Now, maybe say it is a fair point that it, it was his first season in the league last season and he played in a City team that had issues kind of cropping up all, all around it. Um, so there's obviously a quality player in there, but I think it that that example you cite means that there does need, at least need to be a body in there with him. There was, I was actually speaking to someone who's fairly familiar with Guardiola's inner circle and tactical um sort of thinking and the decisions they come to. And talking about the Gundy and Rodri partnership, which we presume will be a thing again once Gundian's back from his um his COVID absence. Saying that the, the he likes that pairing, but that pairing had problems last season when say the pairing works when they're at different heights in the midfield, like say when one goes and one stops. Um when they got flat, that would sort of affect affect the creativity. And they say the Leon game is an example of that, of where you know it all seemed to get a little bit one paced. So, yeah, that that's where Fernandinho maybe is because he's not, even though he's a defensive midfielder at City for most of his time there, he's naturally someone who always looks to get on the front foot and you know to, to sort of be, be pushing forward. So that pairing could work because he's he's a, he has a sort of a different approach to the game than Gundian. Um, but yeah, und- undoubtedly. Going back to the example you have from the game, if City are leaving Rodri in that sort of position in the majority of games this season, then they're not going to be winning the league because those sort of instances are just going to be far too costly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's weird though, Daniel, that he was... I mean, Rodri was fine for that first 25 minutes. Yeah, he, he seems a player that when, when City are on top... Um, then he, he looks great. And when City is struggling, he's struggling, which which might be, you know, it might 
cast aspersions on the team or it might cast aspersions on him. I think the reality is is that as with Busquets, Guardiola sees those central midfielders as as you know as, as the almost the the bellwether of the of the team as a whole. He wants them to dictate the tempo, and if they're struggling, he's acutely aware that the team is struggling. And um, again, that that is that must be a disappointment because I think he thought that Rodri might be able to manage that himself. That he wouldn't get you know he'd be the one to drag everyone else, particularly those behind him with them rather than kind of ceding to this tide that seems to happen when City start to get overpowered and counterattacked. Um I don't know if it's a mobility issue. I don't know if he, he if he you know if he, he's struggling slightly to kind of cover all areas of the pitch, but it it, it feels to me like City that Guardiola is having to pick two players where ideally he would like to only pick one and he would have a player slightly more advanced up the up the pitch to dictate play there. And that feels to me again like it, that is probably holding City back a little bit. Yeah, well, let's let's look at what's behind Rodri at the minute as well, because uh, Ruben Dias came in and uh, made his debut. Dom, uh, how did he look? Do you think? I think he looked um, reassuringly, considering the some of the people that have turned out there for City over the last eighteen months. Um, from Guardiola's point of view, I think he looked like a a central defender who did the centre back things well. I mean, looking through his. Looking through his stats from the game, he won all his duels, all his aerial duels. He made more clearances than any other City player. There was the the passage of play that before Leeds' goal, um, where he won a header that ideally would have been picked up as a second ball, but it disappeared into that twilight zone where a midfield was supposed to be during the second half and Leeds got the ball back. Um, he then stood Rodrigo up enough that the shot was deflected and hit the post. Now, it, it, it wouldn't be something that you're going to put on a a YouTube compilation of great defensive moments, but there were bits like that where he instantly just looked a bit more attuned, a bit more streetwise. And, I mean, that can... We touched earlier about City's missed chances and how maybe that relates to an anxiety about the defence. If, if you have Diash and Laporte as an established partnership with two holders in front of them, and City, I think that instantly makes them a harder team to beat on paper. So, yeah, I mean, hard to read too much into from a game like that, but definitely encouraging signs in just how competent he looked. There is one thing, though, Dom, that I'd like to, to mention just you know just before we get too carried away. Um, in his debut, Ali Kim Mangala kept Diego Costa quiet. Do you remember what happened in his second game? Um, it was an, oh, it was a screaming on goal, wasn't it? Screaming on goal and a penalty giveaway at Hull. <laughs> yeah, well, I do. I vaguely remember the Mangala debut against Chelsea because I, I was watching that on a stag do in Krakow. So people <laughs> talk. People talk about this um, tremendous debut Mangala at City. I mean, I'm not really sure if it happened. To be honest, <laughs> I promise you, it happened. You weren't too <laughs> intoxicated. Um, in, in, in terms of uh, of a debut like that, though, Daniel, sideways rain at Elland Road is a you know it's a hell of a baptism of fire. Yeah, it is. It's a, a kind of welcome to English football cliche. I have to say that the thing that impressed me most, and it sounds slightly paradoxical, is that I didn't really notice him at all. I mean, he, we know he's this kind of defensive leader and he's there to to win aerial duels and add a bit more steel to the back line. But I actually thought he he, he dealt pretty well and pretty efficiently and quietly with, with the work he had to do. Guardiola would have preferred if he wasn't quite so busy in the second half. And and again, we need to talk about the midfield protection there. But yeah, he looks like 
he looks like the answer to what they need in terms of someone that is prepared to say, well, not just I do my thing, you do your thing, but hang on, everyone. We all need to do this together. I will lead the line. I'll make sure you're in the right place. That's going to take time. You know, he's in a new country, in a new league, a new club with new teammates. It will take time for that to happen. But um, yeah, it's, <laughs> the question is how long you get at City because if there are mistakes early on, we know now that he is that probably the last roll of the dice from Guardiola to sort out this central defensive issue. So he doesn't really have an awful lot of time on his side. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. I, I suppose as well, it, it would have been an entirely different game if, if Edison hadn't just punched the ball onto the back of Benjamin Mendy, you know, Daniel. Yes. And I mean, look, Eddie has got, goodwill in the bank the reality is is that we talked about strikers missing chances the, the reality of life as a goalkeeper is that if a striker misses three chances and scores one you remember the goal and if a goalkeeper makes a mistake and three good saves which Edison did you generally remember the mistake and that's just the lot unfortunately um, and he will be disappointed by the mistake he made of course he will but he he has been arguably City's most consistent player over the last other than De Bruyne, I suppose, in the last 15 months. So I think we probably have to give him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Um, final word for the defence, uh, Dom, on, uh, on Benjamin Mendy, because um, I think it, it's fair to say that he didn't have one of his better games. Um, injuries, no doubt, taking their toll on him. What what should we expect of him now? Because he clearly isn't the same player that City signed back in 2017. Yeah, I, th- I think. I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that the game as a whole was a thankless one for fullbacks. I mean... Luke Ayling recovered brilliantly from the 20 minutes he endured against Sterling at the start. But yeah, Mendy's, either Mendy started the game quite a lot, he's undoubtedly a problem. Um, and the fact he's the only recognised left-back is is a problem. Um, it's a shame really, that outside of Guardiola in that whole, in the City camp, you know, the person who speaks most glowingly about Marcelo Bielsa is Mendy. You see him... Yes, he coached him at Marseille. You see him tweet about Bielsa quite a lot. He'd been to see Leeds as a, as a fan. And basically, Bielsa thanks him by telling Ian Pervader at half-time, just get on and run him, and run <laughs> him again. And yeah, it's... Obviously, he, he's, his physical capacity is not where it was when City signed him, even when he was tearing things up in that Monaco team. The injuries have taken a toll, but... The injuries, you know, so so that means he's he's got to become a different type of player. He's got to be, you know, he's not going to be the show-stopping fullback, but he's got to be reliable. He's got to be solid. And I say we talked about Kyle Walker's concentration. You know, the the, the chance Leeds had before half time was a classic example of Mendy completely switching off. He's, yeah, it's things aren't panning out for him, but he he's going to get the chance to play his way back into form because through lack of options so yeah. who else is going to play that's yeah. the, that's the thing yeah um i i've left this till till quite late in the first part of the show because i never like talking about decisions in a game that city haven't won but um the interpretation of handball was changed before this game um would that that handball penalty shout do you think have been a penalty the weekend before daniel uh, I'm inclined to say yes on the basis it seemed like everything that was that hit the hand the week before was a penalty um but i suppose by the rules it probably wouldn't have been in the the, the arm. 
my issue with the handball, the lettering of the handball rule is that it uses the term unnatural. Now, what is unnatural for a, a defender defending a chance is very different to what's unnatural to other players on the pitch and certainly in, in you know, in non-sport. The reality is, is that a defender with his hands behind his back, to me, that's far more unnatural for a defender than having them by his side. So um, I don't know is the answer, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, they've clearly moved to scale it back. Actually, I mean, against what IFAB have said themselves, because they feel that there's a little bit more common sense and subjectivity needed. It's how that subjectivity then clashes with with VAR, which is proudly anti-subjective. Um, so it's a very difficult balance. And I, I think of the decisions in that game, that was the most understandable. Yeah. What about the Sterling one, Dom? Do you reckon that one, uh, you know, in hindsight, there should have been a call for the referee to go and have a look at the screen, maybe? I, I wonder if with the Sterling penalty claim, and, and obviously Mike Dean Mike Dean loves a penalty, uh, but he had the, where he kind of went down, going for a header at the back post a little bit softly, um, about a minute before that challenge. Now, I think I think it's a penalty, but I you wonder if the fact that he... Perhaps look, you know, not not to sort of go full Sean Dyche rant at Raheem here, but he might have looked for one just before, and whether that's an impact. It's a penalty, I think, and it, it should have been examined on the screen. And and likewise, I mean, there's the, the there's the Stuart Dallas cha- challenge on Bernardo Silva as well, which I think looks like a red card, and again, maybe should be given. But we're in such a weird situation with VAR now that, from my mind. Over the weekend, those two decisions where maybe they could the different decision and maybe the correct decision could have been given. The fact that it was all there wasn't a delay and the game just got on and carried on. There was a flow. I, I, I think there's been more fuss about correct decisions being reached over a long length of time, which probably shows how muddled things have got in the sort of battle for hearts and minds with VAR and how that's kind of lost a little bit. Yeah. Um, final final part for the first part of the show, then Daniel. Um, I've, I've oh, am I overreacting to City's problems after you know the start of the season? They've had a win. They've had a, a fairly heavy loss, but again, three penalties, three stupid mistakes, that sort of thing, um, and an end to end draw in three games. Is it is it is it still too early for me to kind of hit the panic button? I think if you take it in a in a purely Manchester City context, it isn't too early because we are seeing a, an extension and in some senses, even an expansion of the problems of last season. Um, but if you put it into a Premier League context, you can you can, you can can mitigate the criticism or, or at least mitigate the panic somewhat because it, it seems for, for various reasons that um, Premier League managers have been caught off guard by the nature of, of this Premier League season to date. Um, whether it's... I mean, I suspect very briefly, I suspect it, it, it's come down to a lack of fitness and a lack of time on the training ground with defenders. And we're, we very quickly realised, and I think even managers have realised, that defending relies on organisation and time together and attacking relies on instinct. Um, so teams are far better going forward than than defending. And when Liverpool are conceding seven and Manchester United are conceding six, conceding five to Leicester, who are, to my mind, as good as Spurs and better than Aston Villa, doesn't seem like a disaster. But yeah, to, to go back to the final point, this is still an extension from last season. And that's what worries me because I think Guardiola knows only too well that this season is huge in terms of defining his reputation in the Premier League outside of Manchester City. 
Yeah, I mean, in terms of, of the other teams as well, Dom, um, Liverpool and United's results suggest that this is going to be an unpredictable season. Maybe we're in a season where no side will put together 10 wins in a row and, you know, 95 points isn't going to be needed to win the title. I think that's good news for City because you, you don't want to jump to conclusions too soon, um, but they do not look like a 9,500-point side. But they're almost certainly an 80-odd point side and... and I think if it's going to be a season like that, then that falls in City's favour. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Liverpool result is, I, even though it could end up just looking like a mad anomaly because it was just, just such a crazy game, the, the, the significance of that could be, whereas you look at City two years ago, they would go a goal up and teams kind of, their heads would go down. As we've discussed now, City scoring a goal seems to cause them as many problems as it does the opposition. Teams think they can get something from City. Now, I don't know if Liverpool's aura has been completely shattered, but there's certainly got to be a few cracks in it by letting in seven goals. So if the, all the teams that play Liverpool now think there is hope, of course Liverpool will have Alisson that come back, have Henderson that come back. But yeah, there's perhaps the most significant result for City at the weekend wasn't theirs, basically. Yeah, and and on top of that, all teams are going to get injuries this year. All teams will have players isolating and, and missing. It's going to be it, it'll be unpredictable. Let's let's say. Uh, now then, the transfer window is closed, so we know what City's squad will look like until January at the very least. It's easy for us to say that City should have done this or that in the market, but actually getting the right players for the club is not an easy task. Mike Rigg was the man in charge of overseeing player acquisitions for City under both Mark Hughes and Roberto Mancini, supervising the signings of the likes of Yaya Torre, David Silva, and Sergio Aguero. In the first of our two-part interview, I've been speaking to him to find out how challenging those early signings were. We were trying to convince people to come into the club and say to them, come and join Manchester City. You know, this is a great club. It's a great place. And it was. Let's let's face it, it's a brilliant club, great stadium. But it never won any titles, never won any cups, never not not in recent history. And it never, you know, there was no... There was no glimpse of a hope of things like winning the Premier League or the Champions, you know, getting into the Champions League. Um, and it was all about, it was all about, and, and this this vision came from Caldoun and came from Gary, Gary Cook. It was, no, come on, we've got to create history here. We've not, a, and Sparky at the time, he was saying about, well, you know, at Man United, when I was there, we were kind of like just following history because Man United, and we were saying to the players, you've got to come in. And it was a genuine sales pitch you've got to come in and you've got to create history. So Vincent Company was coming in and it was like, and, and Vincent has done exactly what was set out at the start. Come and create something, come and, come and be part of developing this history. And that was genuinely around that August to January onwards, we were having these discussions with people to say, you know, we can't promise you Champions League football now. We can't promise you, you know, winning the Premier League. But what we can do is we can promise you we're going to build something here that's going to be built layer upon layer, more players and better players. And it was all part of that building and fixing phase. So building and fixing was going on inside the building, you know, building actually the infrastructure. And then the building and fixing was going on with inside the organisation, talking about, you know, the marketing strategy, the corporate strategy, the brand. And at the same time, we were doing the same on the recruitment. Go and get the next level of player. Let's go and... And I, I remember being involved in some surreal, you know, conversations when we were, you know, some of the lists of players that we were going for and, uh, you know, really, really, really top, top end. Um, and uh, and Caldoun was like, yep, great, go and get him. <laughs> so 
you know, me and the team then, we were just off flying around the globe, meeting agents and quite often meeting players um, just to take us on to another level and, and trying to convince them, come to Man City because, it, you know, you're going to create history. Some we got over, the, some they got over the line, some we didn't. Could you get a feel quite quickly for for which players would buy into that and which players just 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 you you would never going to get to convince to to kind of be part of this project? Yeah, yeah you definitely. And 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 some of them, you know, some of the players that we met, and I'm not going to name names here, but some of the players we met, it was just about how much money can you give us? And uh, it was like, and the agents were like, yeah, give us this and we'll come. And it was like, no, you've got to buy into this a little bit more. You've got to buy into City. You've got to buy into the club. You've got to be part of what this, you know, this great club's got to try and uh, has come from and wants to build. So, you, you, we would do that often by literally sitting in front of um, sitting in front of players. I'll give you one story. So, um, we, we uh, uh, Caldoun was brilliant, and, and the club were brilliant. And they said, right, Mike, you go and build your team. So I was just part of a bigger team of people. So I, I, you know, I am absolutely not taking responsibility of all these players coming here. It was a, there was a big group of people that all, all played their part. There was a team of us that all played our part. And I remember one of the guys who covered Italy for us at the time, a guy called Barry Hunter. Me and Barry went out to Italy to try and get um, uh, Cellini, you know, the central defender, Cellini at the time. And we went and met uh, Davide Lippi, who was his agent, and we needed that kind of like central defender role. I, I can't remember exactly what window it was. And it was like, come on, let's go in. And we went out to Italy, went to Milan, Davide Lippi's his agent, made for me and Barry, and we spent a whole evening at dinner, went met him and spent it in his company. And he was one of the most impressive people I've ever met in football in terms of how he was and how he conducted himself. And, and I remember that time sitting there with him and it was a position that we needed and it was a player that we wanted and we were doing the sales pitch, come and build. And it was funny because around them time, I had on my computer uh, 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 um, a, gen- a, a computer-generated mock-up of the what is now the training ground. Uh, so we were still building Carrington, but the club had obviously planning all this and I was just flying everywhere saying, look what we're building. Look at the training ground and there was like helipads and there was like all these. And this is the one thing I say to everybody about, about you know, Abu Dhabi, uh, Khaldun and the club. Everything they set out and said we're going to do, they delivered. Everything. You know, none of it was bluff and bluster. So we were sitting down with the likes of Cellini and then you kind of, going back to your original question, you're getting that kind of, would he fit us? Is he the right kind of culture? You know, is he the, and he was, absolutely one of the most impressive people I've ever come across. And then for different reasons, which there are not multiple, we just didn't manage to get him over the line, so he didn't come. Um, and then adversely, we'd then go and meet certain agents and players and you'd just get a feeling you'd go, you know, you do all your work on them out there as a player and you do all your background checks, you know, fitness-wise, is there a fit, is it the right position we need and the right profile? But then really getting that feel for someone, whether they were coming in to be part of the bigger project, as the club talked in about the time. Um, there were some really, really good experiences and there were some pretty horrendous ones as well. 
I was going to say, I suppose it, it, it kind of speaks into that, that when you look at, at the players that City signed around about that time, you know, you, you're talking like Vincent Company originally, and then, you know, a few a, a couple of windows later, you're talking Yaya Toure, David Silva, Sergio Aguero. They've all stayed with the club for a long time. And that, that I suppose yeah. that, that, that goes to show just kind of like the, the personalities as well, the, the work gone into to making sure they are the right fit for City. Yeah, some of it, um, it would it would be disingenuous for me to say it was all part of a very scientific you know sometimes it was it was good luck i remember sitting in a hotel with uh you'll all remember dimitri seljuk uh, yaya torres agent um who uh was we were sat in a, it was before a champions league game and i was sat in the hotel um just up the road from the princess sophia which is where every agent met before every game which is just up the road from the new camp and up on the 22nd floor, there's an executive lounge. And literally before every Barcelona game, you would go up there and every agent who's who was in there sitting talking with clubs. And it was it was just like a big football marketplace. And I remember having a meeting with uh, Dimitri to try and convince him to get Yaya Torre. To, and we'd done loads of work. And you know, that was that was one of the most bizarre and funniest um, experiences of my life sitting in a in a room with Dimitri because the first thing you've got to do is you've got to try and you know convince the agent right come to City and you know and at that time yeah I was like you know I'm playing Barcelona you know, Man City I think at the time I hadn't won anything and and then you're always just constantly trying to convince a different part the player or his representatives why to be part of the bigger project and then you know when these guys have come in well they've they, you know history speaks for itself they've 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 left a legacy behind him, which has taken Man City onto another level. How do you take on Gary Cook's assessment of the attempt to sign Kaká? Was was that closer than than it ever kind of seemed, or was it was it one that that never that never really got that close? Well, as far as I was aware, it was not, it was one that was it was just it was never that close. What 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 a lot of people in football got uh, sort of like fans have got to realise is there's multiple plates spinning all the time. Um, very rarely are you ever just going after one target because from a negotiations perspective, you leave yourself wide open because if you put all your eggs in that one basket, um, that the Kaka one, I think, was just unfortunate, un, un, an unfortunate event. It wasn't the first and it certainly won't be the last. Um, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure Gary, he can speak for himself, but I'm sure Gary feels a little bit, you know, uh, looks back on them times as we all do and think, mate, we we could have approached various acquisitions in a different way, but you know hindsight's a wonderful thing. Kaka, I think, was one of probably a, a number of multiple players that we had on. We called it, you know, spinning plates that we were trying to get, and more often than not, I would say, and this probably the, the same applies for every club. More often than not, for every ten targets you're going for, nine fall by the wayside. Support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. That was Mike Riggs, City's former technical director, speaking to me. The second part of that interview will be on next week's show as well. And uh, just before we move on, let's uh, let's have a look at City in the transfer window because uh, it's now closed. City's uh, business is done and dusted. Uh, in has come Farron uh, Torres, Nathan Ake, Scott Carson on loan, who is the big headline signing as far as I'm concerned, and uh, Ruben Diaz. Out's gone Leroy Sane, Claudio Bravo, uh, David Silva, Angelino and Nicholas Otto. So, uh, Dom, first things first, how do you think City have done? I think City's window goes into two halves. I think you've got the pre and post Messi saga that 
getting Torres and Ake, Ake quickly was um, was good, sharp business. Then the whole, that 10-day or however long it was, whirlwind happened. And City did conduct themselves at a distance from that, which I think was the way they had to do it, you know, not least politically given the Catalan link at the club. But it's hard not to deduce that the messy situation would at least have, you know, people have had to be in rooms having meetings about that. And then the... After that, it's a little. This, I mean, the the Koulibaly pursuit. I think there have to has to be questions asked of why, after what happened with Jorginho a couple of some a couple of uh, years ago, why doing business with Napoli was even viewed as viable. Um, then that falls by the wayside. It looks like um, Kounde at Sevilla was the choice. Now he's he looks like an exceptional young player, but is eight years younger than Koulibaly. Is sort of a shorter, quicker centre half. So it looks an entirely different profile. And then Ruben Dias, who they were in for a couple of years ago, he then comes around, who is, again, aside from the fact they're all centre-backs, is a different type of player. So while they might well have landed on a player in Dias who can help a lot, that looks a bit of a mess. And then left-back is... We, we, we spoke about Mendy's problems and there's no replacement. And Angelino has again been shipped off to Leipzig. You know, you look at... Um, Tottenham buying Sergio Reguilon, um, even United buying Alex Tellers. You know, left, there were left backs on the market. Um, Chilwell at uh, Chelsea as well. Yeah, um, but but even say even if the price was prohibited with Chilwell, um, Reguilon was, you know, and obviously that might have been part of the bail deal. We don't know the ins and outs, but I think certainly, and I think fans will look at the uh, Caldoun interview where he spoke about it being a busier window. That you know the. There probably could have been another forward. Obviously, City have a lot of talent in that area. But you look at a weekend where there's no Jesus and no Aguero and it was a bit toothless. You know, it it would have been awful for whoever would have been the forward who wasn't messy. You know, what, what a thing to carry around on your shoulders. But yeah, I think impressive early window dealings. But I think it's, it's hard not to think they've underwhelmed a little bit towards deadline. Yeah, Daniel, it, it, when you think about the Messi deal as well, the, the the fact that they were seriously going for it, it meant that the money was there and they were able to to kind of get the deal done at the very least. It, 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 when that deal then doesn't happen, why do you think they, they just didn't pay what was wanted for Koulibaly or Koundé? I mean, I think the reality is is that, that the money was available for Messi because it was Messi and because he... he, um, he he represented something bigger than just signing, you know, a, a brilliant player for that position. It was a, a true statement signing. It was, you know, go right back to the days of, of Kaká wanting to get that kind of player over the line. For all the business City have done, and they've bought some phenomenal footballers and footballers that have gone on to be phenomenal at City, Messi would have been a statement signing like nothing else. It would have been a huge line in the sand to say, we now consider ourselves to be the biggest club in the world and the biggest draw for the best player in the world. So um, I, I'm not surprised that money was made available or would have been made available for Messi that wasn't available for others um, because he was he would have been signed not just for his football. You know, I don't mean things like shirt sales, which people massively overestimate. I just mean in terms of um, kind of, you know, Kind of club act, status. Yeah, yeah. A, a kind of statue to, to the last 10 years, effectively, to say this, everything we've done has allowed us to sign a player who we believe is the greatest player that's ever lived and he wanted to come to Manchester City. 
Um, I think that's why that money was available. I'm not surprised that it, it, it didn't then remain available for a player who, while might have solved as many issues as Messi, wouldn't have quite been that statement. Yeah, um, Guardiola wanted to, to freshen the squad up with uh, three or four new faces just to change things up, give it a bit of a jump start from from last season with a, a few new players, a few new ideas, that sort of thing. Um, do you feel like they've done enough to do that, Dom? Um, sort of, maybe, <laughs> to, to irritatingly sit on the fence. Um, he probably has 70-odd percent of what he wanted, which... I think that there, there, there are Premier League managers who have come out of the window in a worse state than that. Um, but I, I think, and a lot depends on how quickly Ferran Torres hits the ground and can get going. But um, yeah, I, I think it, it's it's going to be as much solutions from within, you know, getting someone like Bernardo Silva back to the levels he was at. You know, is it, as we mentioned before, changing the midfield shape and finding, you know, someone like Phil Foden to kick on again. So... Yeah, I think if he, if he wanted to refresh the squad, I don't think it's been fully refreshed, but that's not to say a coach of his capabilities doesn't have tools to overcome the issues that are there. Yeah. Um, well, while we're on transfers and, and, and kind of planning for the future, Ferran Soriano has this week suggested that the EFL should look at allowing Premier League B teams to compete. Um, I, I tried to find the audio of his quote, but I couldn't find it. So uh, I'll just have to read what he said. Uh, he said, one of the challenges is that the EFL is a business that's not sustainable enough. They were discussing ways to improve it, salary caps. Now they were nudged, almost pushed to solve the existing problems because of the coronavirus crisis. There are other problems, the challenges of developing players in England where B teams are not allowed. We have a development gap of boys that are 17 or 18. They don't find the right place to develop. And for example, they are taken from us by the German teams who try to sell them back to us for a price which is 10 times what they paid. Um, so, I mean, just quickly on this, Daniel, what what do you think of uh, the idea of Premier League B teams for or against? Yeah, I'm, I'm very against. I've got I've written a, a, a column which will be available to read when this podcast comes out. But yeah, I mean, it really, really annoyed me. Um, I understand that that, that Ferran Soriano is coming from a position of of pretty rampant self interest, and that's his right to do. You know, he represents Manchester City and Manchester City's interests. But um, the idea that we should have some sympathy for for any big club who has whose players, young players, can't get any minutes at their club and therefore decide to go and play in Germany and are forced, you know, are forced to buy them back for ten times the price. Well, it's a pretty tiny violin, to be honest. <laughs> you know, for people that don't know, the 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 elite player performance plan that, that the Premier League effectively railroaded through on the Football League allows them to take take the best youngsters from from EFL clubs for tens of thousands of pounds. Um, thus blocking what used to happen where a club could dig in and get a really good fee for their young players. That can't happen anymore. So clubs are motivated, big clubs are motivated to get as many of those players as they can, stockpile them, and then the best will make it through. The idea that EFL clubs should somehow say, well, thanks for doing that, but also do you want to come and play in our leagues and dismantle the element of tradition and history that we've built up over decades is... Yeah, it's to my mind completely nonsensical. But I know where Soriano is coming from because he's looking after Manchester City's interests. And the reality is, is that if the big clubs want this enough, it will probably happen at some point. Yeah, I mean, you you look at the uh, EFL trophy as well, Dom. There's there's already under twenty three sides in there from the Premier League. It's it's kind of like that. That was almost like testing the waters, I guess. 
Yeah, and and that's I mean I mean I'm not sure how much attention Ferran Soriano's paid to that, but the um, Premier League under 23s and the EFL trophies sort of gone down like a knackered lift for all concerned. Really, there's you know game it, it sort of prepared everyone for behind closed doors football of games that nobody turned up to. It was yeah, it's what, what I mean. He un, he undoubtedly has a point about sustainability issues lower down the divisions, you know and. There's often the thing, the, the sort of the false equivalency thing that pops up every time you know a club like Macclesfield or Bury find themselves in dire straits. It's mentioned how much you know City or Liverpool have spent on the transfer. Now, that, that that's an easy emotional argument to make, but you know, for example, Carl Oyson at Blackpool isn't Sheikh Mansour's fault. Having said all that, it's a remarkably tone deaf thing to put out there <laughs> at this time when you have you know clubs who are important parts of their communities who undoubtedly need reforms. You know, England does have an unwieldy, you've got this 92-team structure, you've got the conference where there's a lot of professional clubs. It's it's a huge creaking mess, but the answer isn't um There's a lot of B-teams in there. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, it's a thing that that, he, that Guardiola also has a, has a bee in his bonnet about when he talks about how Barcelona B-team Gives gives players a chance to prepare, but I, I do wonder if there's an element of Guardiola and you know, Soriano's from that part of the world as well. Well, there's, there's an element of romanticising that. You know, he talks about Barcelona B playing in front of forty thousand people. They don't, and there was the generation there that Guardiola managed and then brought into the Barca team to be arguably the greatest club side ever. But it's not like Barcelona now are teeming with lads who've ripped it up in the B team and are now doing it in La Liga. It's obviously the, the the, the, there is undoubtedly a problem there in terms of uh, you look across the Premier League with England winning under eighteen trophies, and then where do the players go then? But I don't think the answer is City's B team turning up against Northampton, and that'll solve the, all that's wrong with the world. I think that's ludicrous. Yeah, I mean, it's only it's only what nearly twenty five years ago that that City were actually turning up against Northampton as well. So, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it'd be it'd be it'd be quite a bizarre kind of situation to to end in. It, it does it does feel a little bit disingenuous, uh, Daniel, to to be talking about um, uh, uh, this as a solution to the AFL's problems. Does it? Yeah, I mean, it's one thing talking up self interest, which I've said I, I can forgive him for. It's another to try and wrap that self interest in this kind of false blanket of benevolence which is what he was seemingly trying to do when and we should say he wasn't he wasn't talking to media he was talking at a sports press conference like a leader sport press conference and but he knows what happens he knows what he's doing and he knows and the, the sad reality is is that there will be other clubs in the premier league who are secretly very pleased it was him that put his head above the parapet to bring it back because this was completely rejected as an idea in, in 2014 when they wanted to put B teams between the Football League and the National League. And it will, I'm sure, be rejected again. But as I say, the problem is, is that if you use, by using the time now to exploit the situation for your own gain, it just leaves a really sour taste. And, and the reality is, is that, and you know, some Manchester City fans might not care, but Manchester City are and will be in a period of rebuilding some of their PR at the moment because although whatever happened, you know, what happened in, in the courts and they were ultimately proved that they didn't get the ban, but there is still a rebuilding of PR process to be done, I think. And things like this just strike me as really dim, quite frankly. For a pledge of $2 a month, you can hear our weekly bonus show on a wide range of City topics – 
There's more details on patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast. It's time to hear from Howard Hawking. He's talking this week about why you should probably not bother listening to podcasts like this one because it's impossible to analyse this season. Hello and welcome to me trying to analyse a season so far that makes little or no sense, which is pretty much the reason why we shouldn't try to analyse it at all. I found it a bit frustrating how so many have tried to evaluate City and other teams as if this was a normal season. I mean, I've been doing it myself, so I'm hardly one to talk. It hasn't been a normal season now. It isn't. It won't be. The penny finally dropped for many on Sunday night in spectacular fashion. We're pretty much treading water until there's a return to some sort of normality which probably means next season. Until then, just try and enjoy the ride, occasionally, if possible. Of course, we are watching football because there is a financial necessity for football to be played. Those TV deals don't pay themselves. And it is soulless and defending is sparse, it seems, and results are crazy and surely no one is getting close to 100 points again. We're getting half the experience at most because we aren't there in person and other people aren't either. But perhaps we need this football to be happening, a distraction from everything else. After all, as most of the rest of the entertainment industry is left to rot and die, what else is there? My life before all this involved comedy and music gigs too. They were an integral part of my life. They are what made me as happy as any football match could, maybe. They were good for mental health, less so for my bank balance. Now they are gone for the foreseeable future. So football fills all the gaps. And a bit of cricket. The problem is, if I go and see one of my favourite comedians or bands... I can say with confidence they will put on a great show. My football team used to almost guarantee that too, but your football team can never guarantee your success. Billions of us know that, and that is even more so right now. 85 points may well be enough to win this league, allowing the dropping of 29 points in total. Time will tell. Maybe Everton will never lose again. After all, the three meanest defences last season, it may surprise you to learn, were those of Manchester City, Manchester United and Liverpool. Already this season, those defences have conceded five, six and seven goals. Two of the teams have only played three times. The problem is with erratic performances and mixed results is that perhaps football is too much of a distraction. You don't get to predict Ferran Torres' career at City after 100 minutes of football in empty stadiums, a young lad that's moved countries during a global pandemic, but some seem happy to do just that. We're investing too much in unimportant events. Now obviously it's fine to point out that we should have bought a left back, but some of the other criticisms occupy rather grey areas. And this is why we go to bed with veins bulging out of our forehead, because we didn't get a few million quid more for an academy player most of us have not seen kick a football in years, and which has no bearing on the success of the club anyway. He's homegrown though, so apparently must be given a chance above a Spanish international. If he was an Italian playing at Blackburn last season, few of us would care. There's little evidence he's good enough for City at the age of 23, so move on. But as I said, with little else to distract except bad news and waves of anxiety, we need football, we need to debate, we need to criticise. But whilst many of us have been too invested in our football team for many, many years, football is only a welcome distraction right now when our teams are winning and doing great things on and off the pitch. Otherwise, I feel most days like we'd probably be better off without it. Nevertheless, perhaps this brave new world, this crazy new world of crazy scorelines should be embraced. If we have to accept a TV sport for the foreseeable future, then we may as well crank up the entertainment and unpredictability. Better than a title race that is over by January. 
then it's back to watching Taskmaster and Death in Paradise on a loop. I'll probably do that anyway. So let's try and enjoy it, come what may. Perhaps crank it up even more, with flyaways, plastic foam hands for keepers, and extra points for floral third kits. Anyway, don't worry. Liverpool's merry band of asthmatics have run out of breath and are now rubbish, it seems. United will be lucky to stay up, Chelsea can't defend, Jose Mourinho will ruin everything at some point, like he always does. City might not have won at the weekend, but neither did any of City's Champions League opponents. In fact, Porto lost at home to a team I'm not familiar with in the slightest. Even Bayern Munich have conceded seven goals in the last week. There was proof of how the world works for some. They were handily awarded a last-minute penalty when drawing 3-3 at home to the mighty Hearth of Berlin. Sometimes it's not what you know. Yeah, so City will be okay in the long term. Not always top dog, but sometimes top dog. When that will be is another matter. When normality is back, impossible to predict. Impossible because the football world does not help itself. Players go to parties, invite girls to Icelandic hotel rooms and generally take a step back in their road towards normality. They do what much of the population do, in other words, without the Icelandic bit. And it seems what we have now, therefore, is the new norm. And what better proves that and the nonsensical approach to the world we find ourselves in right now than an international break in the midst of a global pandemic? Its sheer stupidity is breathtaking. It's been quite handily timed for City, admittedly, with an injury list that means a fortnight with no domestic games is quite convenient. Unless more players get injured in the meantime, of course. But still. Now, I understand that there may be important games to be played for international teams, just like there supposedly is for domestic teams. But for most countries, there really isn't. Scotland and some other teams have playoffs to sort for the Euros. But as I say these words, England are hours away from playing a friendly match. And then there's the almost equally pointless Nations League, which is now six games for England, more than previously. We find players around the world putting them at risk during a pandemic, even within their bubble, as a spate of already positive cases shows. For what? A tournament that didn't even exist a few years ago. And this is why nothing makes sense anymore, why the jobs of managers has been reduced to a quick prayer and the crossing of fingers at times. It will be impossible for us to even predict what teams line up when City play Arsenal in just over a week. It's impossible to predict how many points will be needed to win this strangest of seasons. It's impossible to be sure whether a poor performance is down to off-field issues, injuries, tactical errors, empty stadiums, a lack of match fitness or a hundred other factors. There's no normality and there can be no easy way to evaluate managers and teams. I mean, United are crap and Solskjaer is the Sunday league manager, but after that, more nuance is needed. Whilst we wait for that first day back in the ground, when everything will matter more again, perhaps we should try and break free from our normal routines, criticisms and evaluations and just make the most of what is now essentially a TV spectacle. Hi there, this is Joe Royal speaking. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast and carry on doing so. Get involved with the debate on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. That was Howard Hawking. We're going to finish with Ask the Panel, as we always do. You can get in touch on Twitter, at Blue Moon Podcast. You can email us through the website, bluemoonpodcast.com. And if you search on Instagram, you can find us on there as well. Just search for Blue Moon Podcast. Uh, Now, there were loads of questions that came in this week. And because it's an international break, and I'm suspecting that next week's will be quite a short show, uh, we're going to I've saved some for next week. So if your question hasn't come up, don't worry. It might still be in the bag for next week. Um, We're going to start with Joe Roper, who got in touch on Instagram to ask, Bernardo seemed to be back to his best in the Leeds game last weekend. Is it a straight fight between him and Foden for the second central attacking midfield position or is there a way to fit them both in without dropping De Bruyne? Don, what do you reckon? 
Um, well, no one's dropping De Bruyne, are they? Obviously. So, yeah, I think a City team with an on-form Bernardo Silva in it is is a better side. You know, you look back to the the 2018-19 season and Guardiola frequently said it with his team was Bernardo plus 10 more. You know, that, that, that season De Bruyne was out a lot of the time and Bernardo was ended up as City's player of the season, dropped off massively last year. There's the, the complication for Bernardo is him and De Bruyne both like playing in the same position. Um, but I think when we've touched upon City's defensive issues and an awful lot of that can come from maybe the pressing has been a little bit more passive than it was previously... That's never an issue for Bernardo when he's on form. You look at some of those particularly tenacious performances he put in, thinking about the the game they won at home against Liverpool the last time they won the league. You know, ha- having that that sort of a player in, he got, he can play across the front three. I think, you know, we we, we talked about whether if they go away from a four three three now, could Bernardo Silva even be someone that plays in? Alongside Rodri in, in in the deeper two, you know that, that that's I, I don't think that's a job Guardiola has him earmarked for, but he's he's done similar jobs. Let's say that, that Liverpool game again. I think he played there against Leicester last season. So yeah, he he doesn't necessarily have to. You know, De, De Bruyne means he's not in the team, but I, I think there's if I were Guardiola, I'd be trying. And Bernardo Silva is back to his best. I think there's an imperative to find a way for him, a way to get him in the eleven somehow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting one for Foden, I guess, as well, Daniel, because he, for, for pretty much all the all of his City senior career, when he's played, he's played really well, apart from one or two games. And he's come off the back of, of, of Leeds and Leicester, where he hasn't had particularly great games. So, I mean, it, it could be an option for, for after the international break, if Guardiola just maybe starts him from the bench and Bernardo starts, maybe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of assumed that Bernardo would, would have to battle... Um, Mares and I guess two Farron Torres for a kind of place on the right of that inverted winger dipping in. But um, without David Silva, it does make sense to have that kind of creativity in the central central midfield, I suppose. Um, look, Phil Foden is is clearly a, a magnificent talent, an outrage, a truly outrageous talent. But young players do suffer slumps. That happens. They get into little ruts. They have times and they tend to get down on themselves, which can extend those ruts a little bit, particularly in an arena where there's so much pressure and so much criticism. So Bernardo will still be needed for that. The question is, I suppose, is whether he's prepared to stay as a, if Phil Foden needs a little break, I play, or whether he fancies being a a kind of leader of a midfield somewhere, which you couldn't really blame him for, given his form 18 months ago. Yeah. Um, a brilliant Twitter name coming up now. The Bertiful South asks, uh, why has Tosin Adrabayo been allowed to leave when he wants to play? And yet Eric Garcia is still at the club and he wants out. What do you reckon, Dom? Uh, the, uh, the the Adrabayo deal is bizarre. Just the, the complete lack of any sort of money that he got from there. I know he was, his contract was running down. And I think, I think we have to be honest at the outset that with due respect to all involved, Eric Garcia has been chased by Barcelona and Tottenham Rabeo has signed for Fulham. But it it does leave, I, I can see how it does leave a bit of a bad taste that there's a, a Manchester lad who wants to be involved, who's been shipped out for a song. I mean, it, it's the, the, the reported £2 million fee really is quite staggering, given, even, you know, considering this strange COVID window we're in, it seems unusual. Um, and it leads you to think that if City are going to use the loan system to get a guy, have a season at West Brom where he's quite good, he was excellent at Blackburn last season. Um, 
surely the point of that, if it isn't to bring him to the first team, is to sell him on for a good price. I mean, it, it's. I think the last couple of years of Tosin's career have benefited the player and West Brom and Blackburn, and not really City at all, as far as I can see. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a strange one as well when you consider that, you know, keeping Garcia when John Stones is still there. Um, you say you've got Diaz, Laporte, Ake, and Stones now. So we're talking about who's going to be your fifth choice centre back. So I think. I think Adarabayo could have been that, and it's strange that the the Garcia to Barcelona deal didn't get over the line. Yeah, it's um, it doesn't leave a great taste for City fans, I'm sure. With Tosin being a local lad, um, a very strange one, I think. Danny, are you a bit surprised that that the Garcia deal didn't happen? Given like he wants to leave, his his contract is up uh, at the end of the season, so he'll he'll move for free at the end of the season. And it was a case of City holding out for for twenty million euros instead of accepting what was it seventeen million? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wonder if if, if Garcia hadn't been quite so public about his desire to leave, whether Guardiola might have have let it happen. I wonder if he. He's slightly stung by that and thought, well, you know, I'm in control here and I will decide whether you leave this club or I will instruct people to decide whether you leave this club or not and it will be on my terms or or our terms, not yours. Because it, it doesn't seem that he's going to play much football at all this season, albeit with the question mark that City normally managed to get to about fifth choice centre-back by February. <laughs> um, so maybe he will. But um, no, it seems a shame because... Um, yeah, I think there's a good centre-back in there, albeit, I have to say, I think one that looks suit, far more suited to playing in Spain than than playing in England. Yeah. Uh, finally, Joseph Hirsch on the emails asks, I've seen several people saying that Haaland is the only Aguero replacement. Do you think he'd be a good fit? And do you think it's a transfer that could happen? Personally, I'd like to see João Felix, but I know that's probably highly unlikely. Daniel, is uh, I mean, Haaland we've seen is, is, is ripping up trees in, uh, in the Bundesliga at the moment. Is he the, uh, the one that City will cover for that Aguero position? I think everyone, everyone will cover him, quite frankly. Um... There are there are other options though, and it should be said that, that he's a very different striker to Sergio Aguero. And Guardiola clearly used you know used Robert Lewandowski very well at Bayern, who is a, a you know a bigger striker than Aguero. But maybe he doesn't want that kind of not target man, but that physical presence as much. And we also should say, and it, it sounds a very hopeful thing to say given what we know about City spending, but. They do also have a 17-year-old striker who's six foot one, who scored twice in the in the EFL Cup, and who may well develop into a, a similar body type and power himself in in Liam Delap. We shouldn't write that off just because we we assume City will buy their way to a new striker. If I was I was I was abs- I was hugely shocked that he brought on Delap against Leeds because it's a very un Guardiola like thing to do. Um, but it was hugely promising for him at 17 years old to to get his his debut. So we shouldn't completely rule that out. Yeah, and I suppose as well. I mean, the, the driving factor behind all this, uh, Don, would, must be that it's it's another father son city uh, link. You know, you've had uh, uh, Schmei- the Schmeichels play for City. Could could the Harlands could follow the Summerbees as well, of course. So um, yeah, I mean, um, so, so would it it'd be turning up to score in the Manchester derby and avenge his father's uh, <laughs> slaying at the boots of Roy Keane? Yeah, there's a, it sort of writes itself, doesn't it? The, the interesting thing about if you know, an Aguero replacement in so far as... Because Aguero's, in some respects, you, you look at nowadays, the versatile forward who can play across the front line is more the sort of guy you find at big clubs. Aguero's a little bit of a throwback, you know, a guy who you'd maybe liken to someone like Romario, 
going back. Um, so insofar as there is an Aguero replacement out there, you would think City are going to have to spend, because as much as City's overall spending is very well documented and it's huge, um, they tend to do that in volume. That you know, so I th- Well, Diaz just became the record signing, didn't he? So they're going to have to go in. If it, whether it was Haaland, maybe, who knows, it'd be Mbappe, someone like that. They're prob- they're going to have to break from what they've done previously if they're going to get a a standout sort of a superstar, yeah, superstar Aguero replacement. Um, and then you, to go back to we were talking about the window, um, they didn't fill all the holes and they wanted to this year. So will they even allow themselves to do that? Well, you know, it's it's tough to see. Yeah, it's, uh, it's one for, for future podcasts and future transfer windows because we've run out of time. Uh, that's it for this week's Blooming Podcast. Thank you very much for listening and thank you to my two guests as well, Don Farrell. Cheers. And Daniel Story. Thanks for having me. Uh, if you'd like some more Blue Moon podcasts, especially over this international break, then you can get a bonus 20 to 30 minutes every week by signing up to be a Patreon backer. It's just $2 a month, so you're getting four or five extra shows for your money, and everything backed goes towards helping us run the podcast as well. All the details for you are on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast. This week's bonus show is about the players that City nearly signed over the last few years and how things might have been a bit different if they'd pulled off those signings, plus a few all-time classics as well. I'll be back next week to look ahead to the game with Arsenal, so I'll see you then. Take care. That was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast.